0: Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome everyone to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today we will be looking at the 1976 biographical political drama, All the President's Men. With me are Ken. When you got them by the balls, their hearts and minds
2: will follow. And Ted. What's the term you guys use for screwing up the opposition? Rat fucking? That's right. You were just doing the same kind of stuff when you were out campaigning for President Nixon. And I'm Eric. We're under a lot of pressure, you
1: know. And you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except for the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country.
2: No pressure. Our podcast has come a long way.
1: I know. That we have. And that's what we're going to be talking about
2: today is All the President's Men. Ted, give us the details of this movie. All right. So we have All the President's Men. It's directed by Alan J. Pacula with a screenplay by William Goldman. Based off of the novel, All the President's Men, by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, it comes in with a running time of 138 minutes. It had a release date of April 4th, 1976. It had a budget of $8.5 million and a box office gross of $70.6 million. All the President's Men stars Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward, Jack Warden as Harry M. Rosenfeld, Martin Balsam as Howard Simmons, Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat, Jason Robards as Ben Bradley. And this is a pretty extensive cast, almost too many to name, not like last week with JFK. It was a who's who. I did find some interesting people who are in the movie that play smaller roles that are kind of interesting. One of the people that I found was Dominic Chianese as Eugenio Martinez. He was one of the Watergate burglars. He was Uncle Junior in The Sopranos. F. Murray Abraham played Sergeant Paul Leeper, one of the arresting officers. Of course, he ended up going on to win Tony's and a Best Supporting Actor, I believe, for Amadeus. And we also had Ned Beatty as Martin Dardis. And, of course, Ned Beatty is famous for Deliverance. Meredith Baxter was Deborah Murray Sloan. And, of course, she played the mom on Family Ties for so long. But, Eric, you brought somebody up that I even missed that was in this. An actress by the name of Polly Holiday
1: was uh, Mr. Dardis' secretary. And uh, she is famous, actually, for her TV role that actually also started in 1976, the sitcom Alice, Kiss My Grits. You That's, might remember that catchphrase. Yeah,
2: of course I remember that. I, I know that. That's pretty awesome. And then so she played of th-
1: Flo, Flo on the TV show she for played about Flo. five yeah. seasons.
2: One of the final things uh, that I found as far as people who were in the movie, uh, Frank Wills, he played the security guard that called the cops for the Watergate break-in. The interesting story about Frank Wills, he played himself. He was actually the person who called the cops for the Watergate break-in. And he was actually fired without explanation a few days after that. And he was out of work for three years until he played himself in this movie. He was never able to have a full-time job again. He died in 2000 at the age of 52. Pretty tragic story for somebody who was actually just doing what he was supposed to do and being a night watchman.
1: Yeah, that is pretty tragic. He had a pretty tough life after this. He got that uh, role in the movie to play himself and could not hold job uh, hold jobs down and just kind of floated around.
2: And based off of a lot of things that I read about the casting of this movie, I'm just going to say that it was probably Robert Redford that gave him that shout out. He did a lot of the heavy lifting here for Mr. Pacula as far mm-hmm. as that sort of thing goes. So the critics were really positive on this movie. All the President's Men comes in with a Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 94%, so it's certified fresh. It has an audience score of 92%. I did find a couple of negatives. One was Arthur Knight from The Hollywood Reporter. And he said, while there's an undoubted fascination in all this, after a couple hours it begins to wear thin. And Gary Arnold, and he's ironically from The Washington Post... He said, political commentators seem to feel that all the president's men will have a far-reaching political impact this year. I'd be more inclined to believe it if the film affected a provocative emotional tone. Pacula is just too cold under the collar.
1: How much you want to bet he's not uh, good friends with uh, Woodward and Bernstein? The, the,
2: the <laughs> critic for the Washington Post kind of panned the movie, so I so yeah, would have
1: torpedoed those bastards. I'm done it, with it. I think he might have been
2: jealous that he wasn't just just a little bit. Whole, yeah, just a little uh, bit. But on the positive side, we have Marjorie Baumgarten from the Austin Chronicle. She said the movie heroically recounts the dogged journalistic sleuthing that cracked the story of the Watergate break-in and cover-up. And then, of course, Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times. All the President's Men is truer to the craft of journalism than to the art of storytelling, and that's its problem. The movie is as accurate about the processes used by investigative reporters as we have any right to expect. And yet, process finally overwhelms narrative. We're adrift in a sea of names, dates, telephone numbers, coincidences, lucky breaks, false leads, dogged footwork, denials, evasions, and sometimes even the truth. That's not to say this movie isn't good at accomplishing what it sets out to do. It provides the most observant study of working journalists that we're ever likely to see in a feature film. It was a overwhelmingly good review by Roger Ebert. He ended up giving it three and a half stars out of four.
1: Or yeah, four and, and a half
2: out of five, I'm sorry.
1: And the critics really liked it. It was nominated for many,
2: many awards. I think it won four, if I remember right. In 2007, it was named as the number 77 greatest movie of all time by the AFI.
1: All right. Ken, tell us about the plot of this movie. Thank you, Wikipedia. Here we go. On June 17th,
0: 1972, a security guard at the Watergate complex finds a door's bolt taped over to prevent it from locking. He calls the police who find and arrest five burglars in the Democratic National Committee headquarters within the complex. The next morning, the Washington Post assigns a reporter, Bob Woodward, to a local courthouse to cover the story, which is considered of minor importance. Woodward learns that the five men possessed electronic bugging equipment and are represented by a high-priced attorney. At the arraignment, one of the burglars is identified as having recently left the CIA. And the others are also revealed to have CIA ties. Woodward connects the burglars to E. Howard Hunt, an employee of President Richard Nixon's White House Counsel Charles Colson, and formerly of the CIA. Carl Bernstein, another Post reporter, is assigned to cover the Watergate story with Woodward. They are reluctant partners but work well together. Executive Editor Benjamin Bradley believes that their work lacks reliable sources and is not worthy of the Post's front page, but he encourages them to further investigate. Woodward. Contacts an anonymous source whom he has used before, who is given the cover name of. Deep Throat, communicating secretly using a red flag placed in his balcony flower pot to signal meetings. They meet at night in an underground parking garage. Deep Throat speaks in riddles and metaphors, avoiding substantial facts about the Watergate break-in, but advises Woodward to follow the money. Woodward and Bernstein connect the five burglars to corrupt activities involving the campaign contributions to the committee to re-elect the president. This includes a 25000 paid check to Kenneth Dahlberg, whom I Miami authorities identified when investigating the Miami-based burglars. However, Bradley and the others at the Post still doubt the investigation and its dependence on sources such as Deep Throat, wondering why the Nixon administration should break the law when the president is almost certain to defeat his opponent in a landslide. Through the former committee's treasurer, Hugh Sloan, Woodward and Bernstein connect a slush fund of hundreds and of thousands of dollars to the White House Chief of Staff, the second most important man in the country, H.R. Halderman, and to the former Attorney General, John Mitchell, who is now the head of the committee. They learn that the committee was financing a campaign to sabotage the Democratic presidential candidate a year before the Watergate burglary. Woodward again meets secretly with Deep Throat and demands that he be less evasive after a mix up. Deep Throat reveals that Haldeman masterminded the Watergate break-in and cover-up. He also states that the cover-up was not just intended to camouflage the committee's involvement, but also to hide covert operations involving the entire U.S. intelligence community. He warns Woodward and Bernstein that their lives are in danger. When the two relay this information to Bradley, he urges them to carry on despite the risk. On January 20, 1973, Bernstein and Woodward type the full story while a television in the newsroom shows Nixon, taking the oath of office for a second term as president. A montage of Watergate-related teletype headlines from the following years is shown, ending with the report of Nixon's resignation and the inauguration of Gerald Ford on August 9, 1974. Cool.
2: So, Ted, when was the first time you saw this movie? I saw this in college. I was a history major in college, so this movie would have fit right into everything that I was studying. But this was not quite for a class, but it also helped provide some information for one of my classes. Here again, Watergate was something that mostly my dad talked about a lot. This totally affected him as just as an American he was always very honest and open while I was growing up about just how messed up all of these people that were involved were. It's sad, and I, I mean, we'll get into my opinion of all of these players involved at the end of the day that something like this would have happened.
1: Uh, for me, I saw this in high school, my senior year. This is actually one of the few movies that I actually read the book on first. So I read the book first and saw the movie, and if you have not read the book, I highly recommend I just bought it on Audible. Is it uh, narrated by the authors? I believe so. In tandem? they just right, going back and forth, every other word? Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Ken, how about you? From beginning to end, it would be this week. I had watched bits and parts here and there, catching it. It's just something I never decided to go rent out or buy.
1: I would just catch it from here to there. Yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that you have to see from start to finish if you've never seen it before, watching it. Midway, early, towards the end, you won't know what the hell's going on. Uh, Robert Redford buying the rights to the book on this is really what kicked it off. What are your thoughts on that, Ted?
2: Kudos to Robert Redford. It seems like he's always kind of had his finger on what's uh, going to be not just culturally important, but as far as being an American important that he's directly involved with has some some importance it's no surprise cuz i mean this is the height of robert redford's power the movie studio wouldn't even greenlight the movie unless he was the star he didn't even want to star in it he wanted al pacino to star in it <sighs> this is pre who uh al this pacino this is like dog day afternoon <sighs> kind of stuff this is yeah. dog day i mean this is yeah this yeah. is good pacino It's quite fortunate for Woodward and Bernstein that Robert Redford stepped up because in the wrong hands, it's going to get too muddied. It's going to get too bogged down. Robert Redford also is the one that brought William Goldman as the writer. He had just worked with him on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Robert Redford knew that he was going to get a writer that would be able to make this a good, uh, watchable story.
0: Even before the book... Redford was already involved in the process. He was already talking to the writers back in 72. He's talking to them when he's working on The Candidate. And then again during The Sting, he's kind of directing them where to go with their book because they didn't write the book yet when he was contacting them. They had an idea of what they want the book to be. And initially, they were avoiding him. They say the reason why they were avoiding him is because they didn't believe it was Robert Redford. It was at a time where their lives were still kind of in danger, they And so they were thinking that these were either pranks or they were scared if they were going to go meet Robert Redford and find out that it's Charles Bronson with a death wish. <laughs> yeah, It was really interesting how... Redford was, like you said, Ted, he just seems to have an eye for what is important at the time. And it didn't hurt the fact that he hated Nixon. He has admitted to this that he didn't like Nixon. And he was very intrigued that something like this was happening under Nixon's watch. And he was wondering how he can get involved in it. That was kind of interesting that Redford actually said that. I was watching an interview that they had with him in 2011. And he said that that was one of his reasons to do this.
2: It'd be interesting to know if he wound up on the enemies list. Good question. Yeah, you're right. Maybe wouldn't surprise me because there were people in Hollywood that were there were
1: like several hundred people on that list. It would not surprise me at all. Yeah, but
0: he's too powerful at this time. We were we were talking this offline. Robert Redford at this time, and for people who want to relate to this that doesn't understand Robert Redford in the 70s he's like the George Clooney of what we have now he was extremely popular at this time His acting he was doing three days of the condor he was doing the sting butch Cassidy and the sundance kid
1: there were so many movies that he was doing jeremiah johnson
2: jeremiah Jeremiah johnson
0: he did jeremiah johnson and that was another film where Mm -hmm. it was all him
1: In 1979, he directed Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for
0: the longest time,
1: he's been
0: a force in Hollywood. So I don't think at any time was he really on anybody's list because... Robert Redford probably would snap well, his fingers. And, N- Nixon's and list the...
1: did not mean that he was going to rub you uh, out. It was just duh. a, hey, these people aren't aren't favorable to the president. Just note it. Keep an eye out. They weren't so trying they to, have, like, sabotage him. But... They
2: would have an FBI file on him. He's That's keeping all. tabs on him. What Nixon was doing was he was using the intelligence establishment. Essentially what J. Edgar Hoover did for... 50 years. Get dirt on people and then use that to his advantage. Nixon ruined Edmund Muskie's run for president. It would make sense that somebody like Redford would be on Nixon's list. And
0: Mark Felt, who ends up being the quote-unquote deep throat, Nixon screwed him over because he was supposed to become the head of the FBI after J. Edgar Hoover. So that plays a little bit here into that. And isn't it interesting that after Hoover dies, Nixon is, has control of both, the, it seems like, the CIA and the FBI, because the oh, FBI yeah. was kind of against Nixon in a way. It seems like whenever somebody was against the FBI, the CIA was there to kind of support the president. We were talking about that in JFK. CIA didn't particularly care for Kennedy. CIA took over. When he went to Dallas, the FBI was kind of pushed away, and the CIA was kind of like the lead on that. And we kind of see that here again during the
2: Watergate scandal. Hoover didn't like the Kennedys. Hoover did not like the Kennedys. Anybody, to be honest with you, Hoover liked power. Well, and that's what we have here: is we have people who are fanatical about power and keeping power and holding power.
0: Yeah, but we see here that Hoover dies, and then what happens? The FBI is kind of weakened.
2: Nixon appoints somebody that he can control.
0: Right, exactly. That's why he doesn't have Mark Felt take no. over and Mark Felt maybe not the main main reason, but he is guy for the story.
2: Probably the most protected source in American journalistic history.
0: However, Nixon knew it was Felt. So they have like the Watergate tapes. When did
1: you when did you hear this? He had I a actually, very good idea. It was Felt. But
0: well, he, he never publicly sure.
2: came out and said it. They
0: have tapes on the Watergate that actually have a meeting with Nixon and another representative—I don't know who the representative was—actually saying, "Do you have an idea who it is?" And they said, "Yes." It's and probably. They said, and they said, "Felt." And the reason why they didn't go after felt is that they did felt would have just blown everything out the water. Outing felt would actually be worse than what actually happened to Nixon.
2: You well, watch. felt knew well where all the bodies were buried. Literally, yes. possibly, literally.
0: Yeah. you need to watch it uh i think national geographic channel had a special on it i'm trying to remember who did the special but they did play the tapes and they did say they did know that felt was Hmm. was the guy
2: interesting i remember in 2002 when that story broke that woodward came out and agreed to identify after felt came forward and agreed to consent to say that he was the the source
0: at that time felt was towards the end of his life he was suffering from a lot of medical issues and Right. He wanted it to be known. Very interesting guy, I felt.
2: Don't oh, uh, fascinating to him. He's one of those guys that truly put America above himself. It's these little crossroads in American history that have, by a saving grace of somebody who's put country above themselves, that has protected America. It's happened a few times. What did you guys think of Hal Holbrook's portrayal of him? I thought Hal Holbrook did a good job here. My biggest complaint with the whole sequence is we've discussed here in at least the last few episodes about using shadows. I don't think Pankula did a very good job here. I think the usage of the fluorescent lights was not necessarily the best use here, but Hal Holbrook does a, a really good job. You actually feel his inner struggle that he doesn't want to... Blow America up, but he wants to take down these people who are literally out of control.
0: He also has an agenda, as I just kind of mentioned, but I just totally disagree with you. I think the shadows are great here. I think the positioning of the character is great. The character is kind of like on an angle at the beginning here, and it isn't until the end that you have that straight face to face discussion. I think the shadows are done really well, and I think the fact that you do it with natural lighting almost. In the parking garage, I think gives it a, a bit of authenticity
1: that it needs. Yeah, I disagree with you. I think it's you mean it's you mean great. fluorescent lighting in the parking garage?
0: The light that's in the parking garage. Yeah, right. He's using whatever he has, and this is what uh, Robert Redford said. We did this on purpose because we wanted things that happened outside of the newsroom to be in the dark. We wanted to be in the dark when we were getting you know this type of information, and then when we're in the newsroom, it's being shared. It's brought to light. To everybody else so right. i actually I, like how that works
2: i get it i just think that the way the fluorescent light comes out onto the screen is kind of harsh it's not pleasing to my eye i, I agree think with both of you actually
1: that. i i kind of lean towards ken's in this regarding the the shadowing on it you're absolutely right with what redford said and as a great segue into the newsroom Initially, they attempted to film this at the Washington Post, and because of all the <laughs> I, you know I day-to-day it. activities and people starstruck, no, they couldn't get anything done. So oh, they p- built this set. What they say? Down to the garbage can uh, yeah. back in in Hollywood, and it was just—it's an incredible set. I reporters, mean,
2: reporters reporters were taking five-minute breaks and right, going to the right, bathroom and, right. and doing their makeup.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the cinematography in this. I mean, a lot of this was filmed in D.C., and it was just incredible, some of the views they've had in Virginia and the Potomac and stuff. But the actual newsroom itself, if you didn't tell me that was a Hollywood set that was built specifically for this, I would have believed you were in a real live actual newsroom of that time. It was incredibly done.
2: I'm actually disappointed that I read that, and it was doing the research here that I found out that it wasn't in a real newsroom, and I was kind of like, oh... I really didn't want to know that now. This looks so real. They
0: must be filming at night and using, like, some type of movie trick to kind of get to look like it's during the daytime or things, you know, because we've seen that before in other movies. The, The fact that they really were that detailed, that's why I think it does work with the garage and other locations that they do. Because I watch some of these clips from that time period, and the reenactments that they show in the movie of what we see like what, in, what happened in real life and what we see on in the movie, are dead on. When we have Sloan come out, coming out with his lawyer, I watched the TV feed of that, compared it to the movie, and it's almost exact. I mean, it's they identical. look yeah. identical. I was like, wow. They did a really great job of trying to find people that looked the part as well. The, this is yeah. a, a very detailed, orientated movie. I agree.
2: Eric, you might have read this too. That actually, they took things off of ben bradley's desk yeah to put into the set it's amazing and ken you're 100 percent right even dustin hoffman kind of looks like carl bernstein yeah the hairs I, the the clothes he, he does when you see him from the back he kind of looks like carl bernstein now bob woodward I think he would even admit that he doesn't look like Robert Redford. He witches, um, right? <laughs> but
1: but he's not a bad-looking guy. I mean, he,
2: no, he, absolutely yeah. not. But he's no. Not but if you Redford, say, hey, no. I've, I've, you know, hey, Robert Redford played me in a movie. It's like, ooh, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like saying that Brad Pitt played me in a movie today. Right, right. Bayon or H. George Clooney played you in a movie. Right. right. Well, I don't think it's
0: that wide of a difference. But I understand what Close. you're saying.
2: <laughs> It, it is amazing, which is why we were talking before we started recording about some people that I wish we would have actually seen their face. Like if we got the other side of a phone call, like when Carl Bernstein calls up Mitchell and Mitchell's just waking up from sleep and he pretends that he doesn't know it's eleven thirty at night. Right. Um, I don't think he's a, He's a lying sack of crap. I, I would have liked to seen somebody portray him. I would have really liked to seen somebody portray Liddy and Hunt, though, because those two weasels... You want to talk about two of the slipperiest, slipperiest weasels to have ever disgraced the halls of power? It's those two guys. Do we and know they are why real they did personalities? That? Why? I have why? no idea.
0: I think it's because they didn't want to take away from the reporters. Because if you bring yeah. those big characters in, how much of a part are you going to give them? It's got to be extremely minor. I think they just felt that they wanted us to focus on the reporter getting the information instead of the face behind the voice on the other end of the
2: phone. I think that's what people right. were talking about. Because we we don't end up getting to see the major players. Mitchell, you don't get, Dean, a, you don't get to see a Nixon. Haldeman. you don't no. get to see a Kissinger reaction, nothing. Right. We don't get Haldeman, we don't get Ehrlichman, we don't get Mitchell, we don't get Liddy, Hunt. You know, like in JFK, LBJ talking to the generals, you know? Exactly. I agree with you, Ken. I think at that point it does get a little bit distracting because these are larger-than-life people. Even in 1976, around the time when this was made, these are still larger-than-life characters. People are still going to
1: jail as late as 77 on this. Yeah. Still in the news, still still
2: current.
0: And again, this is all about Bernstein and Woodward. If we bring in those characters, then it has to be something different.
2: Yeah, it turns
1: into Watergate the movie. We want this to be in the investigation of what they're doing.
0: And this is not what what we want. This is what Redford wants. I want a little bit something different here. I do want more. I do appreciate what Redford's trying to do here and focusing on the people who brought the story out. This has never been done this way before. And you can't do it now because of how we have social media out there and people are just throwing out news stories left and right. And Mm -hmm. now it's all Our
2: friend, the internet, right? Well, that and people in power have eroded america's faith in the news well the news has also of it eroded too.
1: themselves let's be honest they
2: have but people in power have used that to their advantage in very very harmful ways
0: well that was the same and, thing though
2: before this
0: and back in the old days you had whoever was in power suppress the media so certain things wouldn't come out the way it should we were talking about the war efforts you know we were talking about how back in world war ii you would see things the Hearst um, on, papers. There was a suppress of the media, and now it's kind of flipped itself to the point where everybody's a media outlet, and you don't know who to trust. The problem, I think, came from the 24-hour news cycle. You had to have something. You had to have something that pushes ratings. It was all more about ratings now than it was, let's say, back in 72, 73, because well, of the fact that there was only three major networks, and these networks weren't even covering Watergate at the time. They could care less until after the story broke and then CBS took it and ran with it.
1: Think about the main plot of this movie. The antagonist in this movie is not necessarily the Nixon administration, if you think about it, and it's a good antagonist. The antagonist is Ben Bradley. And Mm -hmm. I say that because Ben Bradley always wants two, three, four sources. He wants things checked double-checked,
2: reach. somebody to go on record with this. Go on record, which mm. in today's news media, they don't check anything. Well, it's because of Deep Throat. And I am 100% in agreement of the protection of anonymous sources. Sure. Because a lot of stuff doesn't get done if there's not anonymous sources. And see, and this is where people in power have used that to erode negative stories against them as well. It was because of Deep Throat. This is where the arsenal of the those in power has grown and they learned from what happened in Watergate. Even into the late 80s and 90s, they would have thrown Bob Woodward in prison for not revealing his sources. All you have to do is look at what happened to the two guys who worked for the San Francisco Chronicle when they broke the Balco story about barry bonds using steroids they would not reveal their sources and they were put in prison now granted the courts overturned overturned it and said that they don't have to reveal sources but all of this goes back to deep throat it's the use of the unnamed source
0: it's important to have that and i agree with you i do want to go back to Hal Halbrook because we kind of left him kind of in the dark for dump them uh, we need a snare drum there Holbrook was the only choice for this film and he didn't want to even do this part. He didn't think there was much this, and Redford had to convince him that this guy was kind of like the centerpiece of the whole film and that got him on board. Redford knew who to pick because we see Holbrook here but then when we were just talking about Ben Bradley, Jason Robards was also Robert Redford's only choice. Because Redford had a relationship with him. Robarbs was having issues health wise and he was just trying to make a comeback and he was offered an opportunity, I think it was like a fifty thousand dollar to play this role and he nails it. He got they the make Academy
1: Award?
2: Yeah, he got yeah. the Academy
0: Award. But they joke mm-hmm. around that they actually say that Ben Bradley started acting more like the Ben Bradley from the movie after the movie <laughs> came out.
2: And you mentioned how Holbrook and Redford having to convince him, he actually had to bring in Bob Woodward to explain the relationship that he had with Mark Felt. It's between Redford and Woodward combined that got Holbrook to sign on to this role. It's an iconic role. It's hard for an actor to do something like this and to put all ego aside because really your face is never really shown on screen.
0: But it's his eyes. The eyes. And it's the, the eyes too, yeah. You need the right actor to be able to, you know, look into right. the eyes and see what you were talking about earlier. The struggle that he has with the information that he's getting. I think at the end when he kind of spills the beans that's when you really see the anguish on the face. You get to see a little bit, even though we're still in the dark, you kind of see the emotion of, I don't want to do this, but I have to. It's my duty to do it.
2: Yeah, because he was afraid Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Mitchell were going to get away. Do we want to get into that right here about how this almost unraveled? Because I understand them being... Harsh with the way Bernstein tried to get his FBI source with the counting and hang up if I'm not right. In my opinion, what makes their story even stronger is when Sloan comes out with his lawyer with a denial of the fact that he did not name Haldeman in the grand jury testimony because that's when sloan says nobody ever asked me that right. question and i think that is the most damning part in my opinion that is one of the pieces of the puzzle that then ties not only the fbi into this cover-up but it directly ties in the attorney general's office and that the attorney general whose client i believe it's klein is now directly in target
0: the mistake basically opens it up for the truth to truly come out i mean right. we were just kind of skimming the truth here and by your mistake you actually hit a jackpot but granted you don't get that jackpot without going to dethrough get that information to right. kind of make everything happen
2: this whole thing and not to use a the parlance that was used in the netflix series house of cards but this really was a house of cards Woodward and Bernstein were walking the finest of lines, razor thin lines, to try to get this out there. And it could have been stopped at any particular point. It's just for the grace of God that all these things happened the way they did, because this was an existential crisis in American history. It's almost a shame that in history now, we've kind of lessened what the impact of Watergate was, because now everything is something a gate. It's spy gate or blah 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 gate. And it takes away from the impact of what this really was.
1: It does. Yeah, the word gate is thrown around as a a synonym for any type of scandal. Right. And that is kind of annoying when I do hear the word gate added to something. I'm like, come on.
2: These people were completely working outside of the law. It's hooked on movies, Gabe. (laughs) Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah.
1: It It is interesting when you get a breakdown of, of the characters and the cast that played them does a great job on this. But when you have all these characters kind of trickling down from the president to special counsel, you know, it, it's kind of funny. We haven't brought it up yet, but the... Committee to Re-elect the President, which is such an interesting Creep. committee in itself uh, with the acronym CREEP, which is probably the best acronym I've ever heard in my life. I don't know. Do they still have committees to re-elect presidents? Is that still? Yeah. Is that what super PACs but are it's, now?
2: But it's not called it's It not isn't called CREEP. that no, anymore. It's not called no, anymore. anymore.
1: No, <laughs> No, I'm assuming they're super PACs and all that
2: stuff. Having studied the people that were involved, they knew that they were calling themselves CREEP. Probably did. Yeah. These people I you never underestimate the complete and utter one buffoonery of these people and just complete and utter Just psychos. It's kind of funny, too, if you think about it. Yeah, you
1: had a lot of cash and a lot of slush funds, but you had a lot of checks being funneled and laundered, if you will, (laughs) through banks, Mexican banks. But you still had paper trails of funds. These people thought they were so above the law that they could literally just get away with murder and no one was watching them.
2: They were emboldened by their own success. Liddy was emboldened by his success when they raided the psychiatrist's office in Los Angeles. That was a huge scandal, and they had a huge success when they ruined Edwin Muskie's run for the presidency by making up a fake i I never knew that calling Canadians Canucks was a huge, derogatory term yeah a, a huge slur, but I guess it is. And they have a hockey team called the Canucks. So I never yeah, understood Yeah, ironic. Why the, I know, right? Why this is uh, such a slur. Maybe they should be rethinking of changing their name. Maybe they should, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, they were emboldened by success and they just got sloppy. It was, we don't care anymore because we are above the law, because we own the law. We have one of ours in Mitchell, the attorney general, and then the heat gets turned up on him. He leaves the attorney general's office and becomes the head of CREEP.
1: Which is interesting too, because obviously he had his personal issues. I believe he did a little bit of jail time as well. And how how ironic too that everyone in the movie has nothing good to say about John Mitchell. He is like one of the most hated people in this movie. Yeah. Everyone's like, can't if you can get him. John
2: Mitchell down, he, he's literally yeah. one of the most hated people in American history. Yeah, yeah. and he's one a of the things, horrible human being.
1: The one of the things about this movie, I know we haven't brought this up yet, was the. Follow the money is made up for the movie. That was not part of the vocabulary of the Watergate scandal, the book, the reporting. That's a straight movie line, and it's such a famous movie line, too, that was kind of brought in there.
2: kind of
0: like, show me the money, but it's follow the money. It's Um, follow
2: the money. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No. Oh, yeah. That is modern-day usage in every political scandal. Even to Harvey Weinstein, they said, follow the money. All of the money. I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing.
1: Now, Woodward, Bernstein, all the people related had no issue with that being put in the movie. That liberty being taken. Because it makes a lot of sense, but no one said, no, uh, sorry, Mr. Redford, you can't put that in there. <laughs> in fact, it, there wasn't it, that it,
0: many it, liberties <laughs> taken. That's why I think they were okay with it. The only thing that... Bernstein and Woodward were kind of disappointed in was there was one character that was combined. And we we see this happen too many times where we combine characters. They said they should have pushed harder for, and I'm forgetting the name because the character is not even, played a big part of this whole Watergate issue, but is not mentioned in the film at all. They wish that they would have been able to have separate characters that give that person credit. I go back to these characters and the one person that sticks out that I'm, I'm wondering why he doesn't get enough credit here is Rosenfield with Jack Warden playing Rosenfield at the beginning of this movie. He is like going to bat for them left and right. And when you hear about the Watergate scandal, the Washington post article, you don't hear a lot about him. In fact, he just died last year at Rosenfield. Mm. Um, but Jack Warden here does a great job in portraying him and going to bat for him because they wanted to give this to
1: bigger writers, and he was the yeah, first one. Yeah, because these two guys were on the Metro. They were local D.C.
2: only. Mm-hmm. That's why Woodward was sent to the Rainment hearing. He had just come off of the crime beat, and they sent him over there. And had he not heard the word, I just retired from the CIA out of right. McCord's mouth... It's like, pardon me,
1: what did no, you say? No, I love, I love Robert Redford's line. He like looks down and goes, oh, "Yeah, shit." Just yeah, it was, it was like everything just opened up at that point, right? You know, what's
2: interesting
0: is what Robert Redford does in that scene in the court. He almost has to strain to listen because they're being very oh, quiet sure. about that. And but that's how the movie plays out. It's almost you have to strain yourself to hear everything, to catch everything. One thing about this movie, which is great and frustrating with me at the same time. It's sometimes hard to follow because people are whispering. I'll be watching the movie. It'll be very quiet. They talk very quiet and very secretive. And then all of a sudden, I hear a card peeling out in the parking garage, and it's louder than anything in the world. But they do that on purpose. They kind of do these little things here to kind of distract you so you can focus on only certain things and not on other things. That comes back to what we were talking about, I think, in JFK, where you have to kind of repeat, watch films like this they kind of get the whole picture to kind of follow the breadcrumbs because you're not going to be able to get it the first time around. And even the reporters here don't get it the first time around because they screw up. And they have to backtrack and they have to talk to Deep Throat and get the right information and move forward. Because I think one time watching this, I think we would have wrong information about what happened and that we would need to go back and watch it a second, third time to get the right idea. What is it, you Jack have-
1: Warden? He's walking through the newsroom. He's like, Woodward Bernstein, it's your case. And then they start calling Don't him, fuck it they up.
2: start calling him Woodstein. <laughs>
1: yeah, Woodstein. He's like, <laughs> Woodstein. Weren't yeah, you I, supposed um, to fire him last, last yeah, month? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But he's such but, a great character. I think he's underappreciated in the in the history books because I think he's really the first guy to really make the story work for these writers. And I like Jack Warden in general. We get to see him in Heaven Can Wait later on with Warren Beatty. But he is a, a phenomenal actor. And use cars. Use cars is used another cars one. Is yes, great dual but roles. It's just really great to see somebody going for back. Because throughout the whole movie, well. I shouldn't say the whole movie, but throughout the first half of this movie, none of these guys want to move forward with this. They think it's a dead issue.
1: Nobody cares about Watergate. Even uh, Bradley says
0: half of America doesn't, has never even heard
1: of Watergate. When they're all in the, the room there, the editors going over what stories to put in the paper mm-hmm. for right. the day, it's, what positioning.
0: It's not even mentioned at first.
1: But then as the guys walk out, he has asks one guy who I think is on the world desk his opinion He's on the it. world editor. That conversation between him and bradley is is very interesting the way, because I think a lot of people
2: in America thought the same way and it 's the existential question that we have to have as a viewer, but also as a person just living in America, he speaks for them. Why would they do this he 's pulling so far ahead of McGovern, we ultimately know what happens it 's one of the largest victories in the history of the united states i mean it was up until
1: 84 like Ma- only Ma- carried one
2: state only carried massachusetts there was no reason for it it was just because they Eagle. wanted power they had wiretapped and stolen documents out of a psychiatrist's office in los angeles they torpedoed his presidential run if you hear john dean talk about what this was like he sums it up Nixon had a maniacal desire for power and control it was a thirst that could never be quenched
1: so one of the fascinating things about this movie is we know that Robert Redford bought the book rights to all the president's men and wanted to make this into a major motion picture He had a cast of people that he wanted and got most of them to play these parts. One of the things that Robert Redford did that a lot of, Other directors, actors, people that kind of have a lot of clout in Hollywood have not done on prior movies is he really set up a relationship between the actors and the people that they were playing. There was a strong working friendship between Woodward and Bernstein, Hoffman and Redford, Robards and Ben Bradley. I remember seeing a clip of the Dinah Shore show with uh, Robards on it, talking about his relationship with Ben Bradley and the accuracy of it and how Ben Bradley was made kind of into a star himself kind of uh, ironic, but I, I wanted to really talk about the relationship between the actors and the actual people they played and what really made this a strong, accurate, factual movie is those relationships there's not a lot of liberties taken in this movie. The The relationships really made this movie strong as each party kind of listened to each other. What are your thoughts on that? Ken, we'll start with you.
0: Redford sought Hoffman out for this part. That's, again, why Redford has so much control at this time. He's at the height of his powers. But Hoffman does a great job here of, I love how he's portrayed his character. And these guys... Spent all day with them. They didn't stay over, but I think it was for like six months straight. They were spending all their days with them and Hoffman. He doesn't exactly look like Bernstein, but I think he probably has some of the mannerisms. I'm assuming
1: I... Bernstein smoked that much. Yeah, probably. He did. Is there anywhere you don't smoke? <laughs> <laughs> and that was ad ab- that, that line. That great Everything great line. in
0: the elevator was ad ab- But But uh, Bernstein, if you watch him in talk shows, he's got a lot of energy. Even now, he's into his 70s. Fun fact about Bernstein, that, uh Ted probably knows this, is that his wife... Was Nora Ephron. His wife That's is right. Nora Ephron. Was Nora Ephron, yeah. Of course, she wrote some of the movies that we've already reviewed, like... Uh, when Harry when Met When Harry Sally. Met Sally. So that was a little fun fact. It's kind of funny, because... They talk about Hoffman's character being a ladies' man. And when I look at Bernstein, I don't think of him as a ladies' man, even with the pictures that I see of him. But there is something about the way that he presents himself. If we watch Hoffman talking to the ladies throughout the whole movie, he's very persistent.
1: On the rooftop restaurant, yeah.
0: Yeah, on the rooftop restaurant.
1: I do not know her name, but she was very attractive, I might say.
0: Yeah, and that's what he said. You were very
1: attractive. Very, Which is kind of ironic. It's like, first words... You're very attractive. You know that.
0: But he kind of does that throughout the film. He kind of butters people up. Even when he's trying to get in to do his interview, he's like, kind of a cigarette. So he, yeah, right. he tries to squeeze himself into situations. He knows how to keep the conversation going. I think that's what Bernstein was really like. That's impressive. To manipulate conversations to the point where you should have been kicked out 20 minutes ago and you're still going. The only thing I had a problem was when he was doing the interview with the bookkeeper. He's writing on a like on a sheet, but then when he comes back, when he shows it to Woodward, it's all on, like, toilet paper and tissues and all this other stuff. No, because... Well, it says he's there for he...
1: six hours.
2: Exactly. That's what I was yeah. just going to say. Right, but we yeah. don't
0: actually get to see the actual notepad that he actually wrote the stuff on. It's all just everything else. But, yeah, he's there forever, and he gets the information that he needs, and then they both go back later to her again and get even more information by manipulating. The only thing about these two characters that bugged me just a little bit was at times it did seem like they were abusive a little bit. Granted, I know they're trying to get a story, but in some cases they will go to that one lady's house and she's basically like crying. She wants them to leave because she's afraid, but they're pulling their way into their lives. And did something important happen because of this? Yes. But at the same time, do I have a problem with it? A little bit.
2: In defense of that, they did use some very interesting tactics. We'll use that terminology. But I don't believe that they fully comprehended just how much danger that they or the people they were interviewing, how much danger they were really in. I believe I said this before. Based off of who we're dealing with, especially with Hunt and Liddy, it's amazing that somebody didn't get offed. In this whole thing. That was these guys' M.O. I mean, Hunt worked for the CIA. Liddy was a disgrace. Well, he wasn't a disgrace. He was a retired FBI agent who was known for his borderline illegal dealings. These guys were used to making people disappear. So, Could it be
0: the reason why they didn't know also is because they were so green? I mean, Woodward is basically possibly. on the job by, what they say, nine months. Um, it does sound like uh, Bernstein has been there for a while i don't know how long he is but he was talking about how he's been in the business since he was 16 and he's supposed to be the better writer woodward is the one who's a little bit more particular and a little bit more professional Mm -hmm. but bernstein is one who knows when you read something he knows where to put it to grab you right off the bat and i love that first interaction that they have at his typewriter talking about him taking the story and polishing it again it comes back to Focusing on what is going on in the movie, because when he comes over there, Woodward kind of mumbles to him and trying to figure out why he's got his stuff. And again, this movie makes you really focus on what they're saying. They're, it's easy to miss some of this stuff. I love the fact that he says, I don't have a problem of what you did. It's how you did it. All he had to do was basically ask him and he probably would have been more than happy to let him look at his copy of it. But, yeah, I think being a little bit green around the edges is what makes them naive and not realize that their lives are in danger until Deep Throat basically says, hey, your lives are probably in danger. I mean, you guys are playing with X C I A, and you don't think anything bad's going to happen to you. I, I do think there's just a little naiveness of these two characters and up until the end of the movie.
2: And, you know, as far as going into Robert Redford and Bob Woodward, There had to be a lot of trust that Bob Woodward put in Robert Redford for this to work. I know that uh, when this was all going down, neither one believed that they were talking to Robert Redford, um, (laughs) which is kind of amusing uh, because they were still really covering the story at this point. Uh, There were still people going to jail, like we had said earlier. So the, the fallout was still occurring. It's this relationship between these two, between Redford and Woodward, It's one of those things that can only happen in Hollywood. It's just wonderful that these two men, they took this story that was legitimately one of the biggest stories, journalistic history, and they made it into a a remarkably good movie. Redford put aside his entire ego for this. Like I had said previously, the studio wouldn't greenlight this movie without him in the starring role. But then what to counteract that, his pitch was... His co-star had to be somebody that was equal to him or very close to him. And that was a very small group of people at that point. And the use of Dustin Hoffman here, Dustin Hoffman, I believe he's coming off of Marathon Man. I mean, of course, in The Graduate. He's another it guy. It's interesting that in the credits, Dustin Hoffman gets the credit before... Robert Redford because Redford put aside his ego because he wanted Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward to look like that they're on equal footing because it was both of them that broke this story this also goes to how into this he was there was no one character here that was above anybody else and I love the way that they elevated the role of Ben Bradley I think if there's only one thing that was kind of left out that was an important part of this whole scene, she's the one that said to cut her out, but it was Catherine Graham. She was the owner of the Washington Post, and she's actually the one who stood up to the Nixon administration because they wanted all of the notes that Woodward and Bernstein had. And she goes, they're my notes. If you want them, you come and get them and essentially shut down the criticisms of what these two guys were doing. Now, granted, she said later after she said the movie was out and everything, she regrets not having her point in there, but she's another figure in this whole thing that's kind of got left out of the lurch because as awesome as Ben Bradley was here, she's almost as important because she's built the reputation of the Washington Post.
1: Another uh, great movie, The Post, with, yes. with Tom
2: Hanks about the Pentagon
1: Papers. The Pentagon focuses papers. On, yep. on Catherine Graham. Yep. Yeah, it's an incredible I, movie in itself
2: too. Another American hero. I mean, another American she, hero. She defended the First Amendment, the freedom of the press.
0: She actually, when she watched a, a screening of of the movie because she got to see some of it before it went out, she was like, "Is it too late for me to?" Be added right into the movie she was very impressed with the sorry movie. catherine yeah. yeah you missed oh, it but
2: it's all of these people combined it's why on every issue of the post that comes out it says democracy dies in darkness correct yep and the reputations of woodward and bernstein here and what the post did during the release of the pentagon papers it's so important unfortunately the post it... is a shell of itself Well, most papers are now, right, because what's happened, I know, Ken, you've decried and I'm going to decry the 24-hour news cycle. It's hurt the newspaper industry, but what truly has hurt the news industry, the news is now siphoned out to the people through corporate speak. Corporate ownership, yep. And whether it's NBC, which is owned by Westinghouse, CBS was owned by Westinghouse.
1: NBC was GEP many years. GE,
2: right. It's all owned by corporations. And now the papers have been so consolidated into ownership in the last 10, 15 years that all the papers essentially are owned by like two or three main groups. I think we talked about this earlier off
1: podcast. Do you think that the investigation style of Woodward and Bernstein could be done today? I know we talked about Spotlight about the Catholic Church scandal, which is probably the only thing that really came to mind, but this is an era. This is a movie that is so at its time that it almost could never be repeated. And the one thing that's really interesting about this movie, with with a movie of a a scandal or a death or something of that magnitude, you're usually 5, 10, 15 years out. This movie is made what, a year and a half. Probably started production in 75. You're about a year and a half outside of the actual Watergate scandal. It is still so fresh in the minds of the Americans when this movie is released, which
2: I can't think of a a recent movie
1: of that kind of caliber.
2: Right, and I think that's why you only have a $70 million box office. But
1: obviously we know that this movie has gone on well oh, past yes. that it... seventy million. Academy Awards in seventy seven. We all know movies in seventy six. What was the big movie in seventy six? Everyone. Rocky. Rocky. That's right. But this movie holds par. It's nominated for eight Academy Awards that year. Wins four of them. Let's go go down the list here. We can talk about this. Best production design. It wins. Best supporting actor. Jason Robards, which I think deservedly wins. Best Adapted Screenplay, William Goldman. It wins. Goldman was so strong in the making of this movie, and it shows. Best Sound Mixing, it wins. Okay, I I can see that. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. You got Rocky has a pretty good sound mixing, too.
2: Well, the thing that won that, the way they got the whole thing with the typewriter, what they did to get that was a combination of a gunfire and a whip. Right. Oh really? And, uh, oh, to the, get that the, noise the, to okay. be that staccato, and also too, what got them that is the use of the guns after the twenty-one gun salute after Nixon has been inaugurated. The typewriter is going over the top of the guns, and yeah, that's, yeah. It, that's making the comparison that words are ammunition.
1: I love the uh, commentary Robert Redford when he's when he's reviewing it when they have the uh, balloons dropping. He's like, I hate mm-hmm. balloons. Why do people <laughs> use balloons?
0: When we were talking earlier about the bookkeeper and with Bernstein going over to her house to get all that information, did you guys know that that's the actual home of the bookkeeper? They, actually, they actually rented it out and actually filmed the exact place where it all happened.
1: And so that maybe. was also the house dress that she wore. She wanted to go in the wow. wardrobe and get all dolled up and makeup and everything. And he's and like, like, no, no. just wear just what you got. It? it looks perfect. That's Jane Alexander. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She did not yeah. win. It was nominated for Best Picture. Pretty good group of pictures that year. Uh, Best Director. It got nominated in Best Film Editing. So all the major categories, it was right up there. It was a player. I agree with
0: film editing. I think this film is edited extremely well. Yeah. We talked about Burgess Meredith with Mickey for Best Supporting Actor. Which one would I choose here? It is a close race. I would not have a problem with Burgess Meredith winning here. But Jason Robarb is doing a, a really great job here, too. That's the closest one. I think this one should win over Rocky, even though I like Rocky more as a entertainment film. Like, I'm more likely going to go and downstairs and watch Rocky again before I watch All the President's Men again. Just because... Rocky is one of those feel good stories and the underdog, and it's Rocky for crying out loud, right? And all the no president's people.
1: Been... No people. Rocky three, please listen to Rocky Three <laughs> and, and my Rocky shameless too.
2: plug. As far as the academy goes, and I, I mean, if you listen to a lot of our episodes, the controversy with the academy and disagreements with the academy go run very deep, especially with me. I think that the closeness of time between this movie and the actual events of Watergate probably hurt this movie from winning Best Picture. I think if this movie's made in 1983 or 84, it might have a better shot of winning Best Picture. One of the reasons that Rocky ascended to where it was Rocky's a great film, it's not better than All the President's Men. I think Rocky won because Rocky is a more uplifting story. It's a happier story. And I think people are, they're tired at this point. Eric, when you went into choosing these movies for this section here, we have now bookended what is legitimately one of the most turbulent times in the history of America outside of the Civil War. The assassination of John Kennedy. To the Watergate scandal. It's that 10 year period. It's yeah. that decade. I mean, we talk about how we're split today in these times, but America was being torn apart at its fabric. As all their point. leaders
1: were either being arrested, killed. I mean, right. it was like you didn't know what the hell was going on.
2: You had an assassin murdered on live TV, you had the Vietnam War coming into the TV screens in horrific color. Then you top off everything with the Vietnam War and the assassinations, and then you have the push for equal rights and what was going on in the South. And then you had, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, the riots that go on throughout America. All of this cost this movie the best picture.
1: You're absolutely right. You know why Nixon was pardoned by Ford just to get it over with. You know what? Let's end Watergate. Let's start fresh. That's exactly what Rocky was. It was uplifting. It was the underdog coming up and winning. It was a feel-good movie. You make a great point. I never really thought about that. I think if this was made 10 years later, it probably would be a Best Picture win easily. But you're right. America's just like,
2: come on,
1: really? We're still talking about Watergate?
2: Okay, it's Robert Redford. We'll go see it. It's amazing that The Deer Hunter won Best Picture when it did. being um, That was uh, in that close 78, 78, 78, right? 78, yes. Yeah. The Academy Awards, I believe, should be more about merit. On merit, All the President's Men is a better movie.
0: I kind of agree with you why it didn't win, but I also know that if I look at other political movies, what other political movies are winning Oscars before this time frame? Political Dramas or whatever you want to call this, they just don't do well when it comes to awards because people want to see the feel-good movie win the award. But now we're, we're starting to change in the 70s getting, getting into the 80s where we're starting to be more acceptive of a whole lot of different type of movies. The Exorcist, which we just reviewed not too long ago, that was nominated didn't win, but it was not a, a feel-good movie, movie. That was nominated.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't I a feel-good think- movie?
0: I think it was good for that devil. Was, it was. Uh, no, good devil good for ended him. up
1: losing. Well, I guess it was. Devils really good for losing. William Freakin.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yes. yes. And his abuse of uh, his <laughs> people. And one thing about it, Alan Pacula didn't abuse anybody on the set of. Um, not that All I the know President's of. Men. I did not. Did not read
1: any horror stories about that.
2: Alan Pacula didn't permanently uh, damage Dustin Hoffman or Robert Redford. Now, I know Dustin
1: Hoffman has a reputation for being very difficult to work with on set. (laughs) Kramer vs. Kramer comes to mind. Tootsie, Tootsie, very difficult to work with. (laughs) I didn't really read anything about his mark of perfection or difficult to work with on this
2: movie. Did you guys hear anything about that? No. I I don't think Redford would put up with that, to be honest with you. When Robert Redford comes to you at a Knicks game and says, hey, do you want to play Carl Bernstein? I think at that point, it's all egos aside because now, hey, Robert Redford's coming to you and saying, do you want to play opposite me? And you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk back to Robert Redford? Yeah, probably not. And we have to look point. at where
0: they were in their careers at the time. Hoffman only had a few movies under his belt compared to Redford. Yeah. Redford had an extensive amount of films and of course he's the producer so you're not going to tick off the guy who's running the show
2: even though who holds the purse strings (laughs) yeah right i mean exactly the
0: money who's the boss it's not the director even though the director is amazing here and does a lot of great things i have no problem how this movie is shot the only problem i have with this movie at the end of the day is it makes me want A sequel, and I never get the sequel. I have to actually go do the research and find out what really happened. After they
2: wrote their final big story, what happened? Read the book, man. Read the book. You you know, one of the things I want to mention here—you had mentioned the cinematography—and I don't know if this was an intended because I never was able to read, and I never found if this was an intended consequence. But I loved the shot of them looking down at the cars in the parking lot. Yes, Mm -hmm.
0: it was intended. Yes,
2: all intended. because it all looks like it's the puzzles. Yeah. Puzzle well, pieces what they were trying to do here together
0: is show just how small they were this big well, that's area. that's
2: interesting. That's not how I interpreted it. Yeah, but, but I, I think, think,
0: think but at the same time you can interpret it that way, but I think what they were trying to do was show that the use of these two guys in this big area. Yeah, I get and, that. Because We also see that in the library So during the library, when they were doing the research and the camera pans away, going up and up, they had to split that shot because the camera, and you could even see this in the shot itself, going back and forth, it's jerking a little bit, but they wanted to show, as they go higher and higher up, how they're just one of many people there doing research on something. It could be any of us, I think is what they're saying here, is it could be anybody that can rise to the occasion and take on the government or take on whatever they need to take on and do something important. Because these guys were nobodies right. that stumbled upon this opportunity and they made the most of it. One thing I love about yep. Woodward and the way that Redford portrays him, and, and probably for both of them, but more Woodward, is the note-taking. Them being on the phones, listening to everything. If they say, oh Jesus, or oh God, or whatever the case may be, they're writing that down. Mm-hmm. any expression that they get because it might mean something and right. i think those phone conversations are great i think they're kind of almost the main focus of the movie is all these phone it conversations is. that we it have is. where they talk to the librarian she goes oh yeah he checked out these uh, books on ted kennedy and and then she comes back and says no i did it and then there's all these conversations right. about I don't even know Howard Hunt. Yeah. And I didn't even talk to uh, Carl Wernstein. You know, it's all these denials and they're very interesting conversations. What I enjoyed most watching it a second and third time was listening more into those conversations to get an understanding on why those conversations were so important because they are. Without these conversations, there's no case. I don't care about Deep Throat because without these conversations, all you have is Deep Throat and you can't even use that. You have to have these conversations first and deep throat will be there to kind of tell you yeah you're going in the right direction because that's right. all he was doing at the beginning here it's fascinating And the way that they were filming things when you usually film something and you have a close-up of somebody you can see them perfectly but in the background it's blurred they did this where they kind of split the shot so you can actually whole focus is on everybody in the office so you have mm-hmm. everybody that's in the background watching the news and you have Robert Rufford that's on the telephone call. It's distracting to us as the viewer, but it's also distracting for Redford's character because he's on the phone trying to hear what he's saying while all the stuff in the office is going on behind him. I love the fact they do that because they put you in the office. And you're having the same trouble understanding what's going on with Rufford and what he's listening to in the same sense that Rufford is. I think that's that's pretty
2: awesome. I do like how they do that, too. I also really like the ending shot. Not the final shots of the teletype. I think that's an interesting way to end the movie. But I love the final shot. You have Earl Warren on the TV. He's doing the inauguration of Richard Nixon. And you see in the background both woodward and bernstein are at their typewriters and they're working totally oblivious to, to it to working really, on that yeah, story because right. that story right. right
0: ready to come out i enjoy right. watching rufford trying to type he does that one finger typing. he does
2: the yeah it's, it's called uh, chicken pecking whereas dustin hoffman actually does the actual typing typing which is really impressive did you guys ever use a typewriter oh yeah it's not easy no I-, I remember using a typewriter and I remember using sucked. whiteout on it. <laughs> right? It absolutely sucked. I noticed that Redford was the chicken pecker. That, was, kind of that was pretty funny.
0: Hey, you brought up the fact that the ending shot, how about the beginning shot where it's, it's a yeah. white screen? I was fooled of wondering if I got a bad copy of the disc when I first started watching <laughs> it. Redford wanted to do that. He wanted to do it longer. You wanted to see how long it would take before people would squirm in their seats to wonder what was going wrong with the movie. It's a very interesting way to start the movie and a very interesting way to end the movie. It's not your typical way to start everything. What did they call them back then, where they typed all the things out? It was Teletype. And it's kind of interesting that they do that instead of doing what most documentaries try to do. Give a you reading. A reading. It's very interesting. What I like about this movie, too, compared to, let's say, JFK, and we all know what I had a problem with JFK with, was some fabrications just to kind of support theory and, and things of that nature. This liberties, movie, can Liberties. Give me liberties or give me death, I guess. What is great about this movie, it's extremely accurate. They take some liberties, I don't mind, but at no time are they misleading us to believe it happened a different way. This is a, almost exactly how it happened. If you listen to Bernstein and Woodward, they would tell you, this is how they wanted the movie to be. That was a requirement with them and Redford. They didn't want a, based on a true life story. They didn't want that based on a true life story that we get where a lot of things are added in and subtracted in. Pretty much everything we see here actually happened. And with that, let's go into
1: our reviews. Ken, why don't you kick it off?
0: I enjoyed this movie. It was the first time I got to see it straight through. And I was really actually digging this movie and I was like this is good why have I waited this long to kind of start it but the problem that I had with this movie is when it ended I, that's when I was just starting to want more. We it a second third time. I got to concentrate more on the conversations that were happening on the phone and catching up with stuff that I missed. It's an enjoyable film I do think I will see it again but it's just not one of those kind of movies that screams entertainment for me for a like a Friday Saturday night movie night I do agree that it's better than Rocky as far as it should have won Best Picture. But for my movie taste, it's not as good as Rocky. But I like it better than JFK. So I'm still going to give it a B. I was very close to giving it a B+, but the ending did kind of take away a little bit of that. But it's a solid B. It's a very well-made movie.
1: For me, I think this is, a uh, again, a very well-made movie, as uh, Ken said. I do recommend that you read the book. The book definitely goes past where the ending is of the movie with the typewriter. I agree. The ending disappointed me dramatically because I read the book first. I was expecting a lot more. So when we come to that ending, I'm like, what? You're stopping now? There's still... Another quarter of the book you just completely, you know, ignored. That disappointed me when I first saw it. But as I've watched this movie down the road, I've been able to kind of separate mentally the book and the movie and focus just on the movie itself. It's an incredible movie. I love the actors. I love the story, obviously. This is a movie that I will watch once or twice a year. I'm just a nerd or a geek when it comes to history stuff. And uh, Watergate, the Nixon administration, presidents have fascinated me forever. So this movie is right up one that I would love to watch and will watch again. The cinematography is incredible. I think the direction is great. There's very few negative things I can say about this movie. The ending is really the only thing that I can say. And I understand why they did it. I wish it could have gone a little bit longer like JFK. I wish this could have been a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movie. Hell, maybe push it to three hours. I don't know if that would have flied, but I would have been okay with it. So for me, this movie is teetering on a B plus, A-, minus. but as we've talked about it more and more, I'm going with my A- minus
2: review. Ted, what are your thoughts? This is an interesting part of history. I had, I mean, I studied part of it. This is as accurate as it's going to be. I, too am left at the end a little disappointed that all we get is the teletype at the end that Nixon resigns i think something of that magnitude maybe deserved the actual footage of his speech when he resigns however though i don't know how i can really hold it against the movie because this is a movie about Woodward and Bernstein i hold bob woodward in the highest of esteem whenever he comes out with something My ears immediately are attuned. To have the end of the movie be the end of Nixon almost does them a disservice because they're no longer the focus at that point. I love all of the performances here. It's superbly well acted. And uh, the cinematography, like we had discussed and everything, uh, not much more can be said. This movie is a solid B-plus for me. This is a movie that I'll watch again. It's a movie that I'll probably watch with my daughter when she comes to learn about American history, and then I can tell her about everything that went on around this, and she can read the book. I think that this is a, it's a great vessel. Like Roger Ebert said, this is a master's class in what it was like to be a reporter. The only other movie that comes to mind that's even remotely close to this movie is Spotlight. And if you've not seen Spotlight, you have to see it because that is the First Amendment and the freedom of the press being used at its most powerful. It's awesome to watch. Actually, at the end of the day, after all of the crap, it makes you more proud to be an American because stuff like this wouldn't happen in other countries. All right. Well, it looks like we all like the movie.
1: And I'm hoping that everyone out there has seen the movie. And again, another plug read the book. I think you'll enjoy it if you like the movie you're gonna love the book
0: listen to the podcast
1: first before you do anything always
0: i mean you're at this point you've already listened to the podcast but if you ever said we're doing a film on our podcast and you haven't read the book watch the movie and and listen to the podcast first and then read the book that's how yes
1: i would agree that's very good advice all right ted tell us where they can find us on uh
2: twitter we can be found on twitter at hooked on underscore movies and of course we can be found on any one of the podcast formats that you that are out there spotify apple anchor and if you can leave us a five-star review Uh, write a review if you can it helps us be able to get seen
1: hey and i hope you're all liking uh, the new name hooked on movies hope it's all going well for you and uh, definitely pass the word out to anyone who listens to podcasts especially on movies that us three are definitely hooked on movies. Uh, Ken, what are they saying about us on Facebook?
0: Well, you could join the discussion on Facebook. You know, we are discussing things like Beverly Hills Cop Four is coming around the corner. I know Ted's excited about that. God oh, help right. us! I know. God um, help shout us! Shout out to my daughter Katie, who actually worked on our cover art for our podcast. So thank you, Woo! Katie, for Woo! for that. We've been doing this for a while, so we appreciate you guys with your patience with the name change, with the Facebook change, Twitter change, all the changes that we're trying to do. But we're just trying to make this a better experience for everyone. Keep on giving us suggestions. Keep on letting us know. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure that you rate us on whatever platform that you're listening to us on. And if you don't want to rate us there, let us know on Facebook. And we will interact. So if you want to send us a message on Facebook directly to us, we will respond to you. We are bored. We watch movies all day. We ha- need interaction with other people from time to time. It
1: does help. That's for sure. Well, we are going to be ending this uh, series of movies with our last movie, another uh, political drama, one that you might not know. The 1972 release, The Candidate, starring. Never seen it. Never seen it, right. Me starring neither. Robert Redford and uh, Peter Boyle. It's a very, very interesting movie. So we look forward to doing that one and many, many more in the future to come, folks. So, again, we appreciate you all listening. And just a reminder, I'm not wearing pants. Film at 11. See you at the movies. See you next time at Hooked on Movies.